Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and welcome to another episode of the Disruptive Entrepreneur. Now, very excited to have a special guest with us for this episode. And the deal I did recently to publish Life Leverage, ironically and interestingly, our guest, also published by the same author, sent me down a road because my publishers want me to write a book on wealth and money. And it's been a subject I've been interested in for 15 years. The first five years I made none and I was in a lot of debt. Then I managed to turn it around and you know, you probably know the story, so that's not about me for this interview. But weirdly, when I was at school and all the things you could learn about money, economics, etc., I wasn't interested in. I was the kind of slightly socialist, anti-capitalist. I was more interested in art and creative stuff. Uh, and I kind of ignored the ability to learn about money and the history of money and finance, really. And just about four years ago, I started getting deep into researching and studying the history of money and, and how how money started and what we can learn from it today to create more, to build enterprises that make a difference and increase GDP for yourself, for your enterprise, for your town or city or country, and to do good things with it and to understand how it operates, you know, from a historical, psychological, biological even point of view. And in my deep-rooted research, I stumbled across an amazing book called Coined, which probably is the book that shifted my mind the most on the history of money and what it really was. For example, I always felt that money was replaced a barter system, made us a a faster, more efficient system of circulating money, which I believe is true to a degree, though uh, I think our guest is going to tell us it's a lot deeper than that. So I'm very excited to have you on our first ever uh, non-live podcast, because our guest is quite a few thousand miles away. We actually did just start and had a power cut. So this is version two. I hope we don't have another one. Uh, but I'm very excited to have here the author of Coined, Kabir Segel. So Kabir, welcome and thank you for taking the time to uh, share your uh, knowledge of the history of money with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's get right in then. Uh, for I mean, anyone who knows and studies money will know who you are. But maybe if people haven't, they may not know who you are. So could you kind of give us a bit of your story and how you came to write so many books on money and the history of money? Right. So I uh, was a vice president at JP Morgan in, I actually started in London and then I was in the San Francisco office and and then the New York office. My job was to source emerging market equities opportunities. So I would travel the world to over 25 countries from South Africa to Sri Lanka, Mongolia to Japan, and I would source sort of lucrative trade deals and IPOs. I would convince managements of companies to list their companies on the New York Stock Exchange. And conversely, I would try to find opportunities for billion-dollar hedge fund managers and mutual fund managers to invest abroad in different stocks, whether it's Malaysian stocks or Australian stocks. And so my quest uh, began with this with my job at J.P. Morgan, but I've also written children's books. I've written, I just wrote my first opera on the European debt crisis. And so I uh, have an extensive music background. So my uh, take on this is I try to look at money through all different formats, through 
children's literature, through adult literature, through music. And really the genesis of COIN began in the beginnings of the financial debt crisis in 2008. I had sort of I was working at J.P. Morgan, and I saw people losing their jobs. I saw people losing their houses and incomes, and I saw people, in some cases on the news, losing their lives because people were committing suicide. It was really an unfortunate and tragic situation. And I asked the question, why do people act so irrationally? Why do people act so bizarrely when it comes to money? And that's why I started on this quest and I said, what is going on in the brain? What is going on in the mind when we think about money, when we spend money, when we deal with money? And I started with that question and it took me in several different directions and it culminates in this sort of interdisciplinary look at money called Coined. And what would you say your outcome of writing the book Coined was? You know, was it, was it ex- exploration for you to learn more or was there a specific message you wanted to drive home to us about, you know, the history of money? Well, I wanted people to see money as how it affects sort of, uh, there's a multiplicity to money, meaning that it affects us in all parts of our, our lives. It sort of alters our mind and the neurons in our brain. We can talk about that. It steers our body meaning it sort of guides how we are throughout the day, and it can determine the fate of our souls. So if you look at what the scriptures say about money. So I wanted people not just to think about money in terms of a financial history. I wanted to think people to think about money as an instrument that governs our life, and more so than you may think. We all know money is very important, but you're, even when you're not thinking about money, you're thinking about money because your subconscious is making financial decisions for you. So I wanted to tie the, the threads together between biology and art history and, uh, and religion and show people, you know what, money is perhaps one of the most important human creations of all time. And this is quite a challenge. I think if there's anyone on the planet that could live up to this challenge, it'd be you, Kabir. Try and dilute, distill the history of money and give us like a brief history and time of money in, say, five to seven minutes, if you could. Sure. So I began my quest in the Galapagos Islands where Charles Darwin went on HMS Beagle to come up with his theory of evolution by natural selection. And why did he go there? Because he ultimately realized that genetics was, was very consequential to humanity. And I went there because I was able to see different ecosystems. Now I see this is, I know this is kind of weird, but when you see any animal, they're usually involved in a exchange of energy. And whether they're eating each other, they're killing each other, these transfers of energy. And energy is the currency of nature. They really, it really is. And so when you skip ahead, the first types of currency are energy. It's, it's food, it's uh, meat, it's salt, it's potatoes, it's yams. The first type of currency is really energy. Even today, when you boil it down, in a, in a very abstract sense, money gives us the calories we need to survive. So when you go to Tesco or Waitrose, you're using one currency to get another. And so ultimately, 30,000 years ago, the brain expands and civilization begins, and the Neolithic age begins and around 10,000 years ago. And our brains take on the capacity for symbolic thought, meaning that we can see one thing and see that it's meant to be something else symbolic thought. So the first types of money that gets invented 
in 4000 BC in ancient Mesopotamia. And you can see some of these documents at the British Museum and in, in, in a wonderful exhibit there are loan documents, loan documents, basically denominated in silver and barley. So you would go to the temple and try to get a loan. Usually not poor people. Poor people couldn't do this, but rich people would go. And the temple would loan out money and they would list it in, uh, in a tablet. And so the first type of currency is really credit and debt. Who owes you? Who owes me? That's sort of the first question. And so debt becomes the first principal currency. And then you have in the 7th century BC in Lydia, which is now current day Turkey, you have coins that get invented. And there, uh, King Croesus created little chunks of metal out of electrum, basically an alloy of silver and gold. And he creates coins. The coins start to flourish throughout antiquity from the Persian Empire to the Indian Empire to the Greek Empire. And coins become one of the most, even today, one of the most amazing things to touch and possess because they're metal, they're symbolic, they have etchings on them, they're incredibly artistic renderings. Then you fast forward to the third century BC and paper money starts to get invented, or at least paper gets invented. And then you go to, in China, that is. So paper gets invented in China in the third century. Then you fast forward to the, I believe it's the 10th century AD, the Tang Dynasty in China. Paper money starts to get um, invented because it's too difficult to lug coins all around the vast empire of China. So you have paper currency flourishing, and that is taken by virtue of the Mongol kingdom in the Mongol empire to Italy. Remember Marco Polo? Marco Polo said, the great Khan prints money out of the barks of trees. It was and until, until that time, Europe didn't have paper money. So then the checking system gets invented. And then you have, so you have paper, you have coins, paper, checking, and the money sort of stayed the same until you had uh, the invention of the credit card in the 1950s. And just recently you had the mobile phone, which was a mobile communication, mobile money. So you, there you have, you have 15,000 years of money. If you include the Galapagos and evolution, you have 2 million years of the history of money in six minutes and 23 seconds. And you timed it. <laughs> That's great. Thank you, Kabir. So I've, ke- I've taken a couple of notes here. I've got some sort of scripted questions, if you like, that I prepared. But the one thing I, I really took from what you just said is energy. Now, there was something I learned, and it was kind of more, I suppose, from people like Deepak Chopra, was that energy is never created or disappeared, you know, used or started, but transferred. Do you have any thoughts about um, how money relates to the transfer of energy? And for example, you know, when they say in a recession, you know, there's, there's less GDP, there's less money, but if money is a reflection of a transfer of energy, then surely it's, it's never lost or gained, but only it moves. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, sure. I think um, I, I subscribe to that. I mean, that's sort of, you know, a series of thermodynamics that energy, we're constantly in an energy loop. So right now we're talking, we're exhaling carbon dioxide. And where is that going? That's going into a plant or a tree. And the trees taking in that carbon dioxide, and the carbon dioxide is basically being transformed into oxygen. This is called the Calvin cycle or the carbon loop. 
And so we're in an exchange with nature constantly. That's why in my book, there's only one formula I use in my entire book, and that's the formula for photosynthesis. Because when you go into the uh, forest, all the plants are competing with each other. It's a jungle out there, and they're all competing for energy, for daylight, for sunlight. And so when you take this to economics, when you look at what is savings, what is investment, so they say one person's savings is another person's investment. One person's spending is another person's making money. Mm. And so you're constantly in this loop of taking money, and money is really a tool to express an exchange. And, you know, genetically, we're predisposed to exchange with each other because it helps us survive. There's all these studies that show that if you live alone, you're more likely to not live as long. Or if you live, uh, uh, they say living alone and not seeing that many people per day is analogous to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day and increases in heart disease and all kinds of problems, health problems. So, and the reason why is that exchange helps us survive in the natural world. Deepak Chopra talks about this, but also in in the human world. When you exchange, when you're with other people, you're sharper, you get challenged, your neurons um, wire together. And that's why we created money because money helps us exchange with people. When you don't know someone, when, when someone's not in your own community, they can trust you based on money. So money is really the ultimate survival tool. Thank you. And uh, I think it was probably only maybe three years ago that I really understood that money is just a service of and function and representation of how we evolve, grow, contribute. And you talked about money going from coins, mobile, etc. Um, obviously, now we can uh, transfer money at the speed of light. So how do you think the fact that the speed of money has dramatically increased in which we can exchange it? And hey, correct me if you think I've interpreted it wrong, but you know, I, I guess the money could, tran- could move at the speed of an animal, speed of a horse, then you know, speed of a letter and uh, you know, now the speed of light. So how do you think the fact that the, mu- the speed of money is dramatically increased, how do you think that's impacted on our ability to make it, start up a business or even just mankind? Well, you look at ancient Greece and look at, look at one change of money. Money became uh, coins. When, when coins were invented in sort of the fifth century uh, and you, you could go to the Agora, which is the marketplace. And what would happen is poor people for the first time could go to the marketplace and trade for themselves. They would actually took, take the money and put it in their mouths. It was called, because they didn't have anywhere else to put it, they would call it their movable fortune. But a poor person no longer had to rely on a middle person or a literate middle person or a broker and get ripped off on fees. He could take a coin and, and in many ways, the coin introduced a democracy into the market. It, demo, it democratized the market. And so you looking today, my goodness, look at how fast money flows, and it's having the same effect. When you speed up a transaction, you usually remove the friction from it. So, for example, I was in Saudi Arabia not too long ago, and there's so many Filipinos in Saudi Arabia. There's a lot of Filipinos everywhere. There's 10 million Filipinos living abroad, and they send their money back to the Philippines. And you know, one of the reasons the Filipino economy is doing so well is because of all these billions of dollars of remittances. But the problem is, is that when I asked one of the Filipinos, 
how much do you pay on fees? He said, I pay 10% on sending money to the Philippines. So that's a ripoff. 10% is, is a lot of friction. Mm -hmm. But now with the invention of Bitcoin and the blockchain protocol, we're entering an era where using Bitcoin and blockchain, we could talk about this. You can convert into Bitcoin. You can co convert Saudi Riyadh into Bitcoin and then convert in from Bitcoin into Filipino pesos at the speed of light. And that has an incredible uh, capacity of reducing fees and getting more capital to the people who need it, the people who, who it belongs to. More money is, is sent in remittances every year than international aid. And a lot of that money is caught up in fees. So with the invention of technology, the internet, more importantly, the blockchain, we're going to be entering an era where just like, just like in ancient Greece, uh, today we're going to be seeing many, many millions of people coming to the marketplace and having more money. And that creates more uh, opportunities for all of us. Sure. Now, I definitely had planned to talk about cryptocurrencies, disruption to money. So looking forward to that part. Got a couple of questions. I just want to jump in before we go a bit, uh, you know, techie or futuristic. So quite a basic question, but I think really important. I don't think most people understand this and I'm looking forward to learning from you too. What do you think is the sole purpose of money? Well, in my book, I, I define it as a symbol of value. And, you know, because the, the thing of money is money doesn't have just one sole purpose. It has sort of an infinite purpose is because it's ultimately extensible with the brain. Because like whatever the brain can look at something and turn it from an instrument to acquire goods to a way to codify and represent a society as a piece of artwork. Money is also can also be a way of, of expressing your morality. So it's just like, it's like saying, what's the tool of a baseball bat or what's the tool of a, of a uh, cricket bat? Well, ostensibly, the, tool, the, the, the sole purpose of a cricket bat is to hit the ball, but you can also take the cricket bat and hit someone over the head with it. Sure. And so it's really a tool is dependent on the user. So really, however the user wants to use it, that ultimately becomes the objective of the tool. So are you saying, therefore, then that it depends on the beholder of the money as to the purpose of it? Of course. Yeah, exactly what I'm saying. And that's why when I wrote my book, I didn't want to just write a straight financial history because money doesn't just, just have financial consequences. It has moral consequences on our religion. It, ha it has artistic consequences. I get into the art history of money. It has consequences on sort of the anthropology and how we relate to each other. So it's more than just economic. It's it's panoramic. Sure. So if I were to try and give it a definition, I'd love to hear your take on this. So I've studied a lot about this because I figure if you can really understand the purpose of something you and you know its function, then you know how to use it the best. Uh, so, for example, if I were to say something like the purpose of money is a universal mechanism of exchange of value, what would you say to that? I think it's probably spot on because it's important, like the, the traditional definition of money is like it's a unit of account, instrument of exchange and store value. That's like an economic definition. But I think how you define it is sort of invoking pretty much value. However, we choose to define that. Yeah, money is really an instrument that connotes value. It's an abstract instrument that connotes value. You know, people talk about gold as money. Well, really, however society chooses to, to define money, that is what money becomes. Sure. And so you're, you're right to define it in that way. So why do so many people across the planet have such a negative view, relationship, 
an association with money, you know, that, you know, for example, the love of money is the root of all evil, or, you know, that they spend their life in debt, you know, having these fears or phobias or guilt, envy, shame around money. Why is that the case, do you think? Well, you're right to quote First Timothy, and people misquote it all the time. It's the love of money is the root of all evil, but money itself is not the love of all evil. In fact, you know, people may have a uh, a negative association with money, but I think in many cases, that is probably a cognitive bias in it, in and of itself, because many in many cases, you have sort of a constructive use of the money. When you go to the store, when you buy something, like money makes our life so much more convenient. Instead of having to barter with someone, you know, when you go to Waitrose, you're not saying, hey, I'll, I'll trade you three bananas, <laughs> two coconuts. Money is helping us exchange with each other. When you go into a taxi or an Uber, you're paying with money, easy. And so when you think about all the negative times you deal with money, so maybe you're later on your credit card payment or maybe you're the venture capitalist you're talking to is not giving you money, those are like episodes that may you may recall more, more readily. They may be more easily to remember. But if you look at sort of, sort of all the times you use money, most of the times you're not even thinking about it because it's so convenient. And so I would say that most of us have a positive association with money. We just don't think of it that way because our brain plays a trick on us. And so I think it's important to look at our relationship with money. It's important to look at how money is really an enabler for capitalism. And for, you know, millions of people, you look throughout Asia and China, have become richer because they have more money because of capitalism has been unleashed. And that's a very, very, that's the thing lost on a lot of people is that capitalism has helped a lot of people get a lot richer. Sure. I mean, I can't put my flag in the ground and say I'm like a 100% pro-capitalist, but I believe there are, what, five non-capitalist states and then the rest of them across the world are. So, you know, it's a state, it's a function, it's a, you know, a way of governing that, that is mostly effective. Do you think it's effective, you know, capitalism? Yeah, I mean, to a point, I mean, capitalism has been, it was, socialism was tried in, in China communism in China, India, and you've seen over the last, you know, 30 years since China was liberalized in the 80s, India was liberalized in the 90s, you have an incredible surge of the middle class. And fewer people have, are living in hardcore poverty, less than $1 a day than ever before. And so the question is, why is that? Well, the system has changed. Global capitalism has taken foot. So while there are problems with it, you know, there's inequality and sometimes there's uh, excess I think capitalism generally is a rising tide lifts all boats. And that's really a function of money and how people, when money is free, meaning that it's free to, to sort of flow throughout a market, people can do what they want with it. But when money is controlled in a command and control economy, like a socialist or capitalist state, then there's not as much organic opportunity and growth is really dampened. So I think capitalism is, is a net benefit for, for the world. Mm -hmm. Do you think people's beliefs, their inherent beliefs, even go deeper values, do you think that uh, is externally manifested on their relationship to money and how much they have or don't have? Uh, totally. I think people are constantly trying to comport with how much money and relating it to other people. Like we talk about in my book, I talk a lot about comparison effect. Like it used to be that when you're in your, you sort of compare yourself keeping up with the Joneses, with people in your neighborhood. Like, oh, the person next door bought a new car, they bought an Audi or they bought a Mercedes Benz, I should get one. And that was like, okay, that was generally, I guess, somewhat healthy because usually if you're living in the same neighborhood with them, then you probably, your house is, you, you know, you work in real estate, so your house is probably the same 
same value and at least in the same bracket. But now with social media, you, you compare yourself to people online, people who are living lives that are like so much more glamorous than you. And you start to get sort of uh, a negative feeling. And that uh, one study shows that a third of Facebook users feel envy or jealousy. Because when you're posting a picture of you with some famous person online, most people are like kind of jealous or envious. And that and there's sort of a status going on there. And so when I talk about in my book is status is really a type of currency, the social currency, a gift currency, and people ascribe a value to it. And so, you know, if you want to be one of the, maybe a disruptive idea that we should talk about is when you see other people with more money, you should start to compare yourself, not with them, but compare yourself with people who have less because sure. you'll feel a lot better and you'll feel uh, a lot more content. So hence why a lot of these studies are done and how much money makes you happy. And, you know, around about $75,000, I believe, is like the salary where, OK, you know, yeah, you're pretty happy. You've got what you need. And then anything above that kind of doesn't really add much value in terms of happiness. So do you think this kind of constant comparison can actually kind of dumb our lives down or, you know, maybe not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just smart. I mean, I think it's smart to compare yourself downwards because you start to realize, I mean, that's the famous study of Danny Kahneman, Nobel Prize winning economist. He found that $75,000 median income is sort of the number because that's enough money to sort of take care of your expenses and take care of your well-being. But beyond that, you start to really worry about money and what to do and how to manage it. And below that, again, you're also worried about, about where the next paycheck will come. And so probably one of the most important things is looking at not just money. You know, it's it's I talked about evolution. Evolution is all about more is better. I need more, 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 more. But sometimes, you know, when you look at the scriptures, they're all they're all talking about it's OK to, to get by with less because you start to focus on the things that truly matter in life. Mm-hmm. So as an entrepreneur, or a business owner or someone who wants to, you know, make enough money to pay all the overheads and be able to do a bit more of what you want. There's surely there's got to be a relative amount of growth in that. And then surely with growth comes discomfort and comparison. So how do we balance emotionally and, you know, physically getting the money, the kind of the drive and the desire to grow, which is ultimately evolution, but also this concept you mentioned of comparison and oh well now I've now made a hundred thousand but I know millionaires and now I've known made a million I know deca millionaires and then billionaires so how do we balance the two well there's several um, that question is very good because it sort of wraps up the dual nature of man which is greed and then generosity and uh or fear rather but one of the ways I found to balance this is in in the Hindu tradition I went to India, studied the Hindu perceptions of money is they have a very nuanced look at money. And there's two, there's four goals of life in Hinduism. I'm not, I'm not saying people should become Hindus, but what I'm saying is there's a couple of things you can learn. Two of the goals of life uh, of the four, one of them is called moksha, but one of them is called artha. Now, artha means accumulation of money. It is, it is your duty in life to make money. It is your duty in life to make a lot of money because you have to take care of your family. You have to take care of your kids. You have to, you know, create a legacy for yourself. But when you chase the money, when you chase the Artha, you will eventually become, be left hollow. You'll realize that it's not the most important thing. And then you will realize that it's important to renounce it or detach from it. And that is called moksha, the liberation of this world, liberation from money. So in other words, you have to chase the money because you have material, you have material needs, but in chasing the money, you'll eventually realize that it is not 
the only thing that matters. And this can correspond to periods of your life. So early in life, when you're young and hungry and making a name for yourself and buying real estate and so forth, you should be in Arthur mode, making the money, make, make, make. But as you get a little older, you have a family, you, you sort of you know begin to leave the world and you should start to renounce it and detach from the money. So this can correspond to periods of your life. This can also correspond to periods every day. So in the morning, you wake up, you do your business, you make money, but when you come home, it's important to detach from it and sort of achieve what is called moksha, liberation. So correspond to periods of your day, correspond to periods of your life. I think we're now onto something that really could um, give people breakthroughs because I think when you study and read and learn and, you know, I'm very much one who loves to seek out experts, mentors. I love to learn from people who know more than me about their niche. But what I've tend to find on my journey of learning is people have a quite extreme views. So you have the pro-capitalist and then you have the socialist or, you know, the liberalist or or, or whatever. Uh, And, you know, and then you have the the one that's the go-getter. And then there's the one that's the go giver. And then you've got the, you know, make money, make money, make money. And then you've got the kind of give it away, give it away, give it away. I'd love to get your view on this, Kabir, because I personally feel if if you can try and attain a balance, that's where you get maybe overall mastery. So, for example, the the balance of uh, selfishness or greed and selflessness and giving away. Because if you are too selfless, you self-negate. And I suppose from an evolutionary point of view, you probably get evolved out of society if you're purely selfless, you know, which may be a lot of people who just want to give to charity and stuff like that. They can never really make any money in their business. But if you're pure greed, you you don't give so much to the rest of society. It's independence rather than interdependence or even dependence. And therefore, society will ultimately rebel against you or overthrow you. So like if you balance altruism, narcissism, selfishness and selflessness, so you balance capitalism with giving it away and giving back and giving value to others. Look at Bill Gates now. Society virtually forced him into, you know, philanthropy. It wasn't his plan in his 20s or 30s when he was driving to become a millionaire. What are your thoughts on that? Because I feel like life isn't about the extremes. It's about balancing it all. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the whole idea of generosity is, is very important. The question is sometimes how much. And, you know, if you're a Christian or at least look at Jesus Christ, for example, 80% of his messages in the in his parables are about money. He talks about money so much, it'll make you feel uncomfortable. And he says, basically, you're supposed to give up all your wealth. He says, you know, he's, a rich man comes to him, says, I want to achieve salvation. Jesus says, you have to sell everything and follow me. And then the rich man walks away because he knows it's sort of impossible. How many of us will liquidate all our assets? Um, and it, so that's that's the extreme you talk about. We don't want to do that. And the question is, well, how much then? And so the great sort of writer, C.S. Lewis, he said that he came up with this idea called sacrificial giving. He said, you know, I'm afraid the only rule, only safe rule is to give more than we can spare in other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, and amusements is up to the standard common among those, then we should give more. We are probably giving away too little. Meaning that if you're gonna if you're gonna give um, some money to a charity, can you give a little bit more that sacrifices your well-being? So maybe 
by giving a little bit more, you're not going to be able to go out for dinner that night. And that gives you a little bit of, of, of uh, push to your generosity. So think about how much you want to give and then think about sacrificing something. And then you'll start to realize that you're seeing money as sort of an instrument to help other people and you're balancing your selfishness with your selflessness. Sure. Is there an argument that you can use capitalism or business or enterprise to do that? I'll give you an example. I'm a lover of watches and I have a... I won't go into details, but, you know, I have a, a fair few watches. And the first reason I got into watches was to kind of um, cure my spending addiction, but putting it into something that I could appease my addiction, but without lo- without losing the value of the money. So if I buy a Rolex Daytona, I feel great and I could, I've got the addiction, you know, like the, like the food or the whatever. Uh, but the, re- the Rolex Daytona retains the value, maybe goes up. And um, as I've become more wealthy, I've put a lot more money into watches. And, you know, you buy a Patek Philippe. Yes, some people could see that as as heinous greed and, you know, spending 50 or £100,000 on a watch when you could feed a million children in a third world country. But surely the capitalism that creates the enterprise that, that, that allows the founders of that still family company to exercise their passion and give their gifts to the world and employ people and then the employees' families are fed by your purchasing of the watch. Surely there's spiritualism and charity in capitalism or am i just am i just trying to justify the fact that i love money maybe if you're trying to justify a rolex maybe that maybe maybe in that case but i think there's certainly a there's certainly a powerful effect of sort of of uh social capitalism so if we know what, what Muhammad yunus who wrote the forward to my book he talks about social capitalism so, social business meaning that why not buy a watch from from a company and there are companies out there that do this that part of their business model is employing people poor people to give them jobs or or embedding a social royalty so that when you buy a watch 10 percent of that is allocated to a charity so muhammad yunus started grameen bank in bangladesh and he started loaning money out to women 8.5 million people have borrowed money these are called micro loans you know five ten dollars and he was able to rescue huge villages for about a few hundred dollars, get them out of hardcore poverty. And so when you give people access to capital, when you give people access to money, it helps improve their lives, even if it's a $20 loan. And so you're seeing now one of the most, you know, one of the biggest trends here in the United States is social capitalism, basically using capitalism to help, help people out, like Tom Shoes, right? So Tom Shoes has given out 50 million pairs of shoes. When you buy one pair of shoes, they automatically donate a pair of shoes to people who don't have it throughout the emerging world. So I'm a, a big believer of don't ask people. The, the problem with charity, on the other hand, is charity is asking people for handouts. Mm. And, when, and it doesn't really get to the root of the problem. You should help people try to help themselves. And, one way, and the way to do that is providing them a job or a, a loan and helping them get onto the economic ladder. Sure. And also, is there an argument that the bigger your enterprise and, you know, the greater the profit margin, and the, the more staff you hire and the more consultants and agents and et cetera you have, you know, you're creating a, 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 a bigger, faster GDP. And Yeah. I mean, the biggest employer in Africa is Coca-Cola, right? And right. so you don't think about, are they doing international aid work? I mean, I would argue yes, by providing thousands mm. of jobs in Africa, thousands of jobs in India. That yeah, they're they're getting people to work, and I, a lot of these African companies countries are saying, 
We need more Coca-Colas. We need more people to do this. Mm. So big enterprises get slammed all the time, but they're the biggest, oftentimes they're the biggest employers and injecting the most GDP into a country. Sure. So I have this uh, belief that uh, if you balance the drive for profit uh, with the with contribution and growth, sharing, serving, solving, that gives you sustainable flow of money. You know, you could call that wealth riches. But of course, if money is moving all the time, as we've talked about, it's a, a transfer of energy, a balance of looking at your profit and loss and keeping your overheads down and you know, looking to increase your margin and that kind of thing. But balancing that with how can I solve big problems in the world? How can I serve people? How can I make their life easier? How can I give them leverage? How, how can I, um, yeah, just like, like Uber, you know, what a great example of just something that makes life easier or Airbnb. What do you think about that? Well, you think about the sharing economy, and that's what Uber is, and that's what Airbnb is, is basically taking an inventory of drivers or an inventory of hotels or you know rooms and turning it into really un- unlocking that capital. You know, uh, Hernando de Soto wrote a book called, I think, The Mystery of Capital. He talks about in poor countries, there's actually a lot of capital, but there's no, it's not formalized. So there, he calls it dead capital. Poor people live in slums. And when you live in a slum, you don't get a deed to your house. And when you want to get a more, when you want to take a loan out, usually you take a loan out against your house. And but the problem is, is in these places, there's a formal system. So he calls it. There's about two trillion dollars of dead capital in these emerging worlds. So the whole thing would be going in there, and he's doing this right now. This this wonderful economist is going in there, and he's trying to get, he's trying to formalize how these poor people are living in these slums, and he's trying to unlock their capital, turn it from dead capital to awake capital. And we're, and so we see the benefits of that with Uber or Airbnb is taking latent inventory and converting it into uh, something that's very potent. Right. And this get and this gets into sort of in my book, I talk about the sharing economy and the gift economy. And really the first type of currency is really the debt markets and trust and reciprocity. And we're getting back to that, which is uh, sharing each, each other's resources and creating more opportunities for each other. So if you could use your knowledge of the history of money to and, and how you found it's operated over time to give us some tools or tips on, you know, how to create more or start up our enterprise or grow our enterprise, what would they be? Well, I think it's very important to recognize the cognitive biases and that we all sort of suffer from when it comes to money and our financial decisions. You can just Google cognitive biases and see um See, see how we make irrational financial decisions, one of which is starting a company. Like 80% of companies fail in the first 18 months. I mean, and then, so this bias is called overconfidence. Most entrepreneurs say, oh, I'm going to be in the 20%. Well, if every entrepreneur thinks they're going to be in the 20% of the companies that are successful, the math just doesn't add up. So in terms of probability, what one, and I'm not trying to discourage you from starting your own company. I'm just saying, know the math and know that the cognitive bias is at work and your brain is playing a trick on you because probably you're not going to succeed. And so I, how I built my career and working about money is, you know, we talk about a well-balanced portfolio in the investment community, you know, diversify between stocks, bonds, income. I think you can also do that with your career, you know? So I was a banker, but I was also writing on the side and then my writing started taking off. I started doing music on the side. So it's okay to have a job and get a paycheck and start to invest part-time 
and your curiosities. And when your curiosities turn into your passions and your passions turn into paychecks, then you can leave and, and follow your paychecks. But you don't have to start with nothing and try to go to infinity at the beginning of your life. I'll say just use a well-balanced portfolio, but apply that to your life. Mm. It's funny, as soon as you said 80% of businesses fail, that just made me want to go and set up another one right now. And <laughs> I, I think part of what makes entrepreneurs entrepreneurs and what makes disruptors disruptors is when people tell them they can't, they, they want to, uh, you know, and they want to defy the odds. Um, and, and maybe maybe that's why, you know, may, may, maybe 20% of the people hold 80% of the wealth Etc. So let's open that loop. What are your thoughts, Kabir, on you know the uh, the uneven distribution of wealth, and and why do you think it is like that? I think you probably you, re, you put your finger on it right there in that comment that most people are are sort of happy with the status quo, right? And it takes effort, it takes hustle, it takes muscle to start a company to to uh, gain resources, and I think you know capitalism is. In its basis, sort of a meritocracy, and you can work your way and try to make money. Open your own shop, you know, get opportunities, make money. And not everyone's going to do that, but and a lot of times it's governed by need. Like some of the most entrepreneurial people in the world are in India, hustling. You know, middle class Indians. They don't have a lot of money, and they're like completely driven to make life better for themselves. You know, they're governed by more and more and more because they're just trying to survive. But what happens is when you already have a lot of money or when you have a society where a lot, there's a lot of rich people and it ossifies, and then you have a system where the hungry guy can't move up, that's a problem. Like right now in, in the United States, wages haven't gone up in the last 15 to 20 years, The me- meaning the, we- the median wages. So you have a system in, in the United States where the average guy is not having as easy of a time moving up. It's also probably the case in the United Kingdom, which has historically been more, I'm sorry, I'll say this, but more, more classism in, in the United States, mm. sort of how, uh, how the society has been built with the aristocracy. And so one of, the, one of the indicators of this, you should always look at the list of billionaires in a society. In America, if you look at the top 20 billionaires, there's a lot of change in that over the years because there's all these dot-com billionaires that come and go. But when you look at some of the European billionaires, it's always pretty much the same families, the same names. So there's, there's more stagnation in those economies. So capitalism, is, I think, is great. It helps hungry people move up. But when too many people move up, <laughs> the, the society starts to ossify. And that, that's why you need policies to introduce more quality into the system. Sure. So on the subject of you know, the disruptive entrepreneur being disruptive, do you think that's a way to create more enterprise economy, make more money by um, by disrupting? By because you know maybe what disruption is 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 it's a redirection of the flow of money or a, or a transfer of energy from one place to another. Do you, do you think this kind of disruptive thing is something that can be monetized well? Yeah, especially if it's smart. It's, it's good that you got back to energy because when I think of disruption, I think of disruption in energy flows. Things are going one way you inject yourself into the system and then the flow of energy goes a different way, whether it's the flow of ideas, the flow of capital, the flow of money. So when you disrupt something, it's important to think about how you're solving a problem. I think a lot of people come up with kind of a nifty technology, but you got to think about, will the dogs eat the dog food? And because that's, that's truly going to be the, the, you know, the disruption. You invent a new thing and are people going to use it? 
And so, I, you know, when you go to these disruptive conferences and you hear all these ideas, start solving for how can I improve someone's life? What's the disrupt? How do I make things more convenient? How do I make it, you know, how do, how do I make things more like money? You know, meaning mm. convenient, easy to use. Yeah, um, I mean, imagine if you invented money, you'd, you'd have a lot of money, wouldn't you? <laughs> totally, totally. Some people are doing that with, you know, with mm. uh, new payment systems. And I think that's one of the, one of the, mine, um, the, the golden opportunities going forward is in payment systems. Sure. So probably a great time to talk about that. There's still a few questions. Have you still got a few minutes? Are you okay? I do, yeah. Great. So I just want to, I mean, I know we're not finished, but I want to thank you. I mean, I could talk about this for hours. Very interesting. So... I'm really getting more and more interested in in disruptive currency or how money changes the way it moves. And PayPal comes to mind as being a a way of moving and transferring money that that got easier. You know, I remember a a little joke I played with my friend where we would send each other PayPal requests for like 10 million or 100 million pounds. And like when it first came out, it was like a bit of a joke. You could just email each other and transfer money, but it's no joke anymore. You know, obviously, look at Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, and you know where they are now, and you know that, that a billion-pound companies off the back of that. You mentioned a Bitcoin, and you know that's one of crypt, a cryptocurrency. So, where do you see the future of money? What disruptions are are there, and, and why do these why do these people make so much money when they they change how money is the function of it or or how it's delivered? Yeah, I'll give you two scenarios. Let's say there's another financial crisis and there's just Armageddon, right? And then, you know, the monetary systems melt down. I think the future of money in that case is going to be very different because right now, how is money made? Money is made through the banks. When the bank gives out a loan, you know, the, the central bank goes to the banking system. So we want to create more money. And then the bank gives a loan out to citizens. That's effectively injecting more money into the economy. But I think one of the problems in that scenario is the bank holds all the power. You know, the bank's determining who gets the loan. And we don't distribute water like that. The water companies aren't saying who does and does not get water, but the banks do. So I think in the future, if there's another economic meltdown, it's going to call into question the monetary system. And we may enter a system where the government disperses money directly to people on credit cards. So essentially, think about it sort of like a socialist society where you wake up and in your bank account is a payment from the government. And so the money's not going through the banks, it's going directly into your bank account. And so that's sort of like a, a socialist utopia that may result if there's a loss of confidence in the monetary system. So that's one scenario. The second scenario you mentioned about technology and cryptocurrencies, I think cryptocurrencies are going to be powerful because of their, of their technology, not because of them being money. So what I mean by that is when you go to Starbucks and buy a coffee, you're not going to be paying in Bitcoin. Because it doesn't really solve that much purpose mm. because you could use, you can just use dollars or pounds, right, for mm. to pay for a cappuccino. If I could just jump in there, though, Kabir, really quickly, please do finish. But 10 years ago, we'd never imagined that we'd stick our smartphone on a little device and the money moves, would we? That's true. But at the same time, 85% of transactions in this world are still based in cash. Mm. So like the United States and the United Kingdom are probably the tip of the spear in innovation. But- when you go to China, when, when, when you go to uh, even developed countries like Germany, Germany has 85 million people, but only 10 million credit cards. And so there's like not that much credit card penetration in Germany or Japan because there's cultural reasons for that. The word in debt for German is schuld, which means guilt. Mm. They have sort of cultural conniptions about, about money and debt, especially. So most of the world is still based in cash. And I think 
I think mobile phones, yes, they're, they're going to eventually be the principal means of exchange. But uh, the problem is if we have a power cut like we just did, then your telephone's not your, – your mobile phone's not going to work and people are still going to use cash. Mm. So I do think that cryptocurrencies are going to be very powerful not just in terms of money but in transferring any file. That's the whole idea of Bitcoin. It's not about money. It's about transferring files. Like if I want to send you a – if I want to send you an MP3 or a PDF, I'll send it to you but I still have a copy of it. But if I wanted to transfer the file to you, I could use Bitcoin to send you that exact version. Basically, I could give you the key, the, the keys to that PDF, and I can then I can no longer open it. And that's what the whole invention of the blockchain protocol is, transferring files. So now I can sell you a stock. I don't have to go through a bank. I can just use the blockchain protocol. I can sell you my car. I don't have to go through a middle person. I can sell you anything, and I can transfer things. And that's the great innovation of blockchain is that you can transfer things without a middleman. And of course, the argument that there's no inflation because there's a fixed finite amount of it. Right, right. But then, and that's the problem with, but that's the problem with the, uh, using it as a currency because ultimately when we get into a recession, and this was, this was the problem during the 1920s in the United Kingdom when Winston Churchill was Chancellor of the Exchequer, he said it was the wor- it was the biggest mistake in his life. He made a, a few mistakes in War and Peace. He said we we chose deflation over inflation, meaning mm. that when you go through a recession, you want to inflate your currency, or yeah. otherwise you get grease. I mean, it's a very smart decision that the United Kingdom is not on the euro because when there's a problem, you can either choose inflation or deflation, and deflation is very painful. You have fifty, you have unemployment, you have people out of jobs, you have prices going down, but when you have inflation. You can kind of borrow your way and hope that your revenues, your growth recovers, and then your revenue can 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 make up for your losses. Sure. So I, I think that's I kind of wanted to jump in there, and I'm glad you said that because I think a lot of people see inflation as a bad thing, but inflation gets money moving. You know, deflation people just keep the money. You know, they hoard the money, don't they? It's, it's not inflation keeps money moving, which is GDP, which is a transfer of energy again. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, I know people, and I talk about in my book how inflation is sort of a silent tax. But you're right, it moves money, it gets the velocity of money going. And it's really the prescription. I mean, John Maynard Keynes was that was Keynesianism. It was about how to rescue an economy when it's in when it's in doubt, you have to inflate your way out of the crisis. Mm. So you mentioned something that uh, uh, we've got to talk about because I talk to my business partner about this a lot. So I've got like the most skeptical business partner ever. And so, you know, when you talk, I asked you a question about, uh, you know, how you can maybe make more money and you talked about, well, you know, maybe diversify or I think, you know, don't, you don't necessarily have to do one thing. And in terms of money and currency, he's very much about that. And he's kind of drilled that into me. So I like to have physical, you know, so some kind of metals, because of course you're hedging against currency, you know, devaluation or extremes. You know, watches, which are quite tradable, if you get the right ones that go up. Then, of course, you've got real estate or property, as we call it here, which, you know, kind of normally beats inflation and you can leverage. Of course, you've got, you might have some cash, you might have diamonds, you know, you might have different business models that one's more capital based, one's more cash flow based. So, you know, I think I certainly see that as a good thing because then you de risk any extreme scenario. One extreme scenario they're talking about quite a lot in the UK is a cashless society. And um, my business partner just thinks that's a way to just totally, completely, you know, um, control us and tax even more off of us. So I guess a couple of questions. Number one, could you ever see us getting to a cashless society? And if so, what do you think that's going to mean? 
yeah, I think we could. Even in the, in the Netherlands, they've actually banned some. I think so there's a law that bans some restaurants from accepting cash. Yes, I think the, the drug stores you could still use cash because they have pharmaceutical products that people need. But I can't see a I can't see a cashless economy. And it looks sort of like Uber, right? So like it's more of a sharing economy. And I can see one day, take it out into the future, that payment devices are embedded into our hands, into our into our brains. And that you can walk into a store, they sort of you can it can size you up based on a, a chip that you're wearing or something that's been implanted. And if transaction happens, you don't even see the transaction. Like you walk out of an Uber. You can walk into a weight rose. You can, you know, leave a building and the transaction just happens. That's not necessarily. I mean, that there's a cashless society, meaning that there's no physical money changing hands, but we enter into a digital economy or a neural economy, a neurological economy, where again we get back to what's being exchanged, really energy, an abstract version of energy. And so, just has you know, the, the beginning of money was a credit system, was a debit system, and the more we advance the more we sort of return to that idea that money is really a crediting and debit system. When you, you know, back in the old days, when you bought, when you um, did a favor for a friend, you know, no, no money was changing hands, but the favor was changing hands. Who owes who? And so as we move into the future, money becomes more like the gift economy where everyone's just sort of not doing favors for each other, but it looks like that. You get out of a car, there's no really transaction. So more and more, I think a cashless society is going to be at hand. Do you think that could cause problems with, you know, increased taxation or control? It could. I mean, people think people think that uh, uh, like cash because it's more anonymous. And I talk about in my book I, during the 2008 crisis when monetary institutions were coming under doubt, people were hoarding cash, which is actually an instrument of the, the, the same institution that was failing. The Federal Reserve of the United States, or perceived to be failing, and so people like money because uh, cash because it's anonymous. It's uh, you know you can hide from the from authorities, but there's also a lot of benefits to going onto a credit system. But I know that's a concern of people. Um, one of the problems also with cash is it's, it's a public health hazard. It's uh, very dirty. Mm. And funny, in fact, money circulating in the United Kingdom. Um, they found batches of E. coli on money greater than in public toilets. Wow. Wash your hands. Sure, yeah. There's a, um, I, I believe they're creating a new um, material that they're making it from. I think that's one of the reasons they're doing it. Of course, if they make it more durable, it lasts longer. Um, and I think that's another reason. I can't, I, I've been in my research, I found, I can't remember the material, but it's some kind of synthetic material. Yeah. Canada's rolling it out, polymer. Yes. But also, uh, you know, the art is pretty important, interesting. I, I always find it very interesting why Charles Darwin's on the UK currency. That would never fly in the United States. There's a lot of <laughs> religious right-wing folks that would be against that. And, you, and he was being replaced, though, by Jane Austen on your currency. Right. Interesting. So how can the history of money and understanding it better, like you do, help us create more enterprise and be a better entrepreneur and, you know, ultimately make more profit? Well, I think if we understand uh, the root of money is trust and, you know, trusting the system, but trusting also the counterparty. And, it, and when you start a company, you don't have a huge uh, you don't have a huge brand name next to your name. You have, have just yourself. And it's really important to be a sound counterparty to bring to have your clients trust you. 
And by studying the history of money, it's really studying instruments of trust and realizing that one of the most powerful creations, important creations in the history of mankind is really an instrument of trust. And the more you can build trust into your company, trust into what your content, trust into your ideas, the more people will come to you because they start to see your brand as reliable. They start to see your brand is something that can be trusted. They start to see, um, and that's, and when that happens, that's when you start to make the money. When people trust you, the money flows. Sure. I remember learning that a few years ago, and I'll be honest, when I first heard that, I thought it was a bit fluffy, a bit wishy-washy, maybe a bit of a cop-out. But I completely changed my view on that now, because, for example, if someone trusts you well, the rate or the cost of your money that you borrow from them will be less. And if right. they trust you less, the, the, they'll want more collateral and they'll charge you a higher interest rate. You got it. Cost mm. of money based mm. on trust. I mean, even investing in a country, when you, like you're trying to invest in Russia, your risk premium on your equity is a lot more expensive because people don't trust the Russian government. And so it's a lot more expensive to invest in Russia. Also, I mean, the returns can be higher, but it's a lot more, it's a lot risky. Sure. There's a reason why all assets are, are sort of um, measured against the United States Treasury bills, which is called a riskless asset because everyone believes the U.S. government is not going to fail. So that's the ultimate riskless at people trust. And so money and trust go together and it costs their capital is is uh, measured against that sure and then you get the bank runs when you don't trust the banks and then the banks break well they say you know, the best way to rob a bank is to own one yeah, <laughs> yeah. and they say that's that's actually an abuse of trust <laughs> of course and uh, you know interest that's what it is isn't it interest is how much or little do i trust you um to have a deferred payment so right 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 and, and the word credit credere means to believe from ancient latin so yeah Wow. Fascinating stuff. So two more questions, if it's okay. And I ask every person that I interview these same two questions. Okay. And they are, number one, what advice would you give a younger version of you? So let's say, how old are you now, Kabir, if you don't mind me asking? 32. 32. Okay. So what what advice would you give to a 22-year-old, Kabir? I would say, what would I say? I was like, read more. <laughs> uh, I read a lot of books, but I would say read more and write more. Because the thing about writing is that it really clarifies how you think. Uh, Walter Lippmann, the great economist, the great uh, commentary op-ed columnist, someone asked him, what does he think about a certain political issue? He, he said, I don't know what I think. I haven't written about it yet. Mm. And so I started writing. I've always been writing, but I would, I would be writing even more than I did because I would you learn more when you write about something and you start to, if you want to start, if you want to um, want to start a business and want to be disruptive, you should be writing about it, putting your deck together. You're like constantly generating material because you're going to learn by writing. Mm. And I think I find that would be my advice to my younger self is to write more than you, than you were. Cause I, I took breaks when I wasn't writing at all. I, I took a couple years off. I would just have stayed at it. Sure. Um, and I'd love to just jump in and uh, share something here. Cause I, I couldn't endorse that anymore. And again, you know, if I was starting up in business and I was, I wanted to make money and, you know, I was driven and focused on that, I'd want some, give me some hard stuff on making money. But they say, and one of my mentors said to me, the difference between someone who's really wealthy and someone who's not is the books they've read and the people they've met. And I try and get through about 200 books a year, something like that. Uh, I'm a bit of a collector of goals and I love to target myself even to the amount of books I read. Mm -hmm. 
And, um, you know, I never, re- I never read a nonfiction book before 2005 and I was always in debt. Uh, mm. So definitely agree with that. I mean, I, you know, I, I never would have found you. We never would have had this conversation and who knows where that will lead. And my book, Life Leverage, really is 70% of that is just a, a small little ingredient of hundreds of books I've read, you know, with, mm-hmm. with my slant on it and now that I'm able to monetize that. Uh, so we'll definitely endorse that. And then the writing thing. So I'm a quite a prolific writer like yourself. Now, I, I, someone told me something that really resonated with me and they said that you, know, you, you formulate some ideas in your head and, you know, you sit on them for a while and, and, and maybe they're good and you write them and, you know, they come out and maybe they're good and maybe they're not. But, you know, let's say that they are and you, you write a book or something and you've got something that's there, an asset. But what you've done with writing is you've now freed your mind to bring lots more ideas in. It's, it's almost like maybe you can contain a certain amount of ideas in your head before you, your brain explodes or you get overwhelmed. And writing is like emptying it to allow more ideas. What do, what do you think about that? I'm 100% in agreement. It's, it's your, you're getting your brain onto a piece of paper and you can look at it. I mean, Truman Capote the great writer says writing is editing. And I really believe that because you write something and then you go back and look at it. So, well, I can improve this, that, and that. And so it's like having a long sustained conversation with yourself and sort of crystallizing what you think and having clarity of thought, helps you be more decisive and helps. uh, And when you're more decisive, you can make more money. Amen. So the final question is, what does being a disruptive entrepreneur mean to you, Kabir? So if you could define it, or what does it say to you? How do you feel around, around that statement or that brand? Um, I like the brand. I would say if you want to be a disruptive entrepreneur, start out focusing on the quantity, not the quality, meaning that you're going to have to try something and you're going to have to constantly pivot and pivot and pivot. And over time, you will get better, meaning that the first idea you have is probably not going to be the best idea. It's going to be, you have to edit it a lot. So continue on having ideas, throwing things against the wall, changing the business model when it doesn't work. And if you continue on just getting a quantity of ideas out there and you know constantly adapting, the quality will take care of itself. And you'll go from being just not just disruptive, but also profitable. Great. Thank you. So I would really like to help you get your message out there way more. Maybe that's important to you. Maybe that's not. I'm sure your publishers would like it. <laughs> so um, where can people find you and how, you know, what, what, how can people consume some of your great information? Sure. So my website's coinedbook.com, coinedbook.com. And you can find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is HiKabir, H-I-K-A-B-I-R. Or you can just look me up, Kabir Siegel, on, on Facebook. Kabir, thank you. And then finally, where, where, where are you taking your life, your information? You know, what's, what's your vision? What- <laughs> well, now my goal is to get this opera out. So I've been writing music and writing. I finished the, the libretto. So hopefully we, we record the opera uh, later this year and stage it uh, soon. So hope it'll be a, a fun take at the financial debt crisis. And that was a great writing exercise. And I'm sure not before too long, I'll be working on my next book. And hey, if I'm still disrupting and you're still writing, maybe in a year or two, we could catch up for another interview. Sounds great. We'd love to. Right. 
Right, Kabir, I just want to say on behalf of myself and all of our listeners, a huge thank you. Really interesting, really insightful stuff. A lot of my community are never going to have heard before. So thank you very much. My pleasure.